Everyone eats out every day, but people don't think about how food arrives on the plate. This is Grounded, and I'm Lauren Mitchell. Join me as we delve deep into the challenges, expertise, and experiences of professionals and innovators in the food service industry. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to wish all the mothers listening a very happy Mother's Day. I distinctly selected this conversation as this exceptional woman has over 30 years of corporate experience at some of the biggest companies and showed up to work as her full self, which includes the roles of wife and mother. Her experience involves a variety of domestic and international positions in supply chain, marketing, sales, and IT. She kept her family with her through all of it including a move to China. I hope you enjoy this conversation, both men and women, as a special tribute to the working mothers out there. Hi, it's Stephanie with your two-minute update from the seal. Greengate was the last grower to transition from our Yuma growing region. We are now pulling almost all products from the Salinas growing area on leafy items. Although many items are still demand exceeds supply, our contracts are performing well. We believe that each week will improve on most commodities. To learn more about this year's transition and how our growers forecast the next few weeks, follow us on Twitter and Instagram to see live coverage and interviews with our farming partners. All right. Today's guest is a proven innovator, fearless change agent, passionate people leader. She was voted in for Supply Chain Digital's Top 100 Women in Supply Chain for 2023. She was voted in 2020 for 100 Most Influential Women in Supply Chain by Global Women in Supply Chain. A prominent global supply chain executive with leading consumer brands, McDonald's and Starbucks, previously the Vice President of Direct Sourcing Global Supply Chain at Starbucks, Mrs. Jacqueline Howard. Hello, Lauren. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. So I just learned today is a beautiful day in Seattle. I got a great picture from you with the cherry <laughs> blossoms on a, on a walk yes. this morning. Yes. The cherry blossoms are abound in glory right now. We have various places where they had even either been gifted by our sister city, Kyoto, Japan years ago, or have been planted around the city. And it's just absolutely beautiful. UW, or what University of Washington, we call it UW here. Seward Park and the Washington Arboretum are really nice places to go take a beautiful walk along along the pink and uh, white blossoms right now. I love it. All right. Well, let's dig in. I believe our listeners and myself um, are going to learn a lot from our conversation today. You have a broad scope of expertise. Your career has included deep experience in supply chain strategy, product development, environmental sustainability, and crisis management. Can you give our listeners just an overview of your career, you know, where you started and and how you got into supply chain? Oh, sure. And I uh, will date myself as I speak because it wasn't always called supply chain. In fact, you were probably doing work within one of the elements of supply chain, but not even aware of it back in the 80s and probably earlier for some folks that started before me. So I actually had no intention on doing what I did at the end of the day. I actually went to high school in Ohio and was a big STEM nerd as we know it today, but I really loved math and science. I had fantastic teachers. And my original intention was to go to college to be a surgeon. 
And oh, wow. there was a major, yeah, <laughs> there's a major that's better known now than it was then biomedical engineering. And so I wanted to combine my love of uh, math, science, and the idea of being an engineer with the medical side of it. So there were only a few colleges and universities back then in the late, early, early 80s, <laughs> just get real, in the early <laughs> 80s that actually offered that major. And so I ended up picking Duke University to go to undergrad in that discipline. I just fell in love with the campus and the feeling when I was walking on the tour with my mother. Um, and I knew that that was going to be a great school. Now it's nowhere near, um, it was nowhere near as popular back in the 80s globally as it is now because of things like the investments in different schools, uh, law school, medical school, obviously, has been there for a while. But it had been known in a small set of circle of academicians and also people who were specialist that that was a great place to go to school. So as I finished up my senior year, I realized I didn't want to work in a laboratory, nor did I want to go through seven plus more years of torture, being a physician and going through residency and all the things I, I noticed that people that were pre-med were going to go through. But I just love the major and the idea of solving problems and fascinated with the human body as a, um, a beautifully made machine. So I still say stay very close to all the innovations in biomedical engineering and the like, but decided that wasn't where I wanted to end up early in the um, disciplines emergence. So I ended up getting my MBA, was blessed with another full fellowship to go to University of Delaware. Then I was uh, recruited uh, to move to um, the McDonald's organization in Chicago. And that was an excellent move because, you know, I figure people got to eat. And uh, <laughs> McDonald's is a well-known brand, but I had no idea about the machine behind the brand wow. and the economies it, it created in industries and globally. So that was extremely developmental for me, uh, spending 19 years doing that role between just being a very kind of entry-level buyer and dealing with different categories like bakery and oil and potatoes and the things that you all know McDonald's for. But working with those suppliers who have made investments over the decades um, through family-owned businesses or corporations to support the, the major brand that it is globally. So I, I got fantastic roles over the years and ended up going um, through four different moves there, uh, increasing responsibilities and moving overseas to China to run the supply chain for McDonald's back in um, the mid-2000s, uh, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> so 2012 through 2015. And I uh, returned and after a year and a half decided I had a great run, 19 years. And I took a voluntary exit package, which was wonderful. Spent eight months, I thought retiring. And then I was <laughs> tapped on by Starbucks and ended up moving to Seattle with my family. Um, and spent four years at Starbucks and learned a lot about the coffee industry. And I left, um, felt like I had a good run there and, um, and fully retired for real this time. So... <laughs> I say all that to say I never had thought I was going to do what I did um, over these decades, but it's been fantastic. I've had great opportunities. And I always tell young people, don't make a decision today for the rest of your life. Make a good decision right now and be mm -hmm. open to opportunities, but don't seal the deal on yourself because things will open up for you that you'll, you have no idea about right now. Jacqueline, you are amazing. That's a, a great start. <laughs> and I think well positions us for several of these broad questions that I want to ask, um, okay. but it, thank you for touching on from A to Z, you know, multi-states, multi-different companies, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. also different areas. Um, so to kind of aggregate everything that you've learned from those experiences and, and, and maybe provide some, some of your best answers to these, but 
One question that just came off off the bat in, in learning about the different commodities, just with McDonald's alone, you mentioned oils and, and bakery items. Can you identify one perhaps category that from your perspective is the most challenging to source? It's a challenge because most of these products and um, indirectly or directly are, are based on agricultural inputs, um, except when you're talking about maybe, well, heavy metals or things like that, like mined minerals, but you're still dealing with the environment in some way. But in the food industry specifically, you're dealing with um, probably the origin of almost everything is a raw ingredient called agricultural product. Even if you're talking about the meat industry, because animals got to eat something, right? They usually eat grains. So I think one of the bigger um, opportunities is understanding what the underlying commodity cost drivers are and the input cost to any of your products. That's kind of the materials and the financial side. But I also the lightning rod tends to be ethical treatment of employees, the environment and the animals, right? So those things, no matter what the industry will come into play and you've gotta be cognizant of what that looks like in your particular categories or industry and being in retail and having a brand that's very visible many times, the lightning rod comes directly to that brand. And even though they may be an inkling of the industry because they are so prominent, they become the place where people may wanna protest, right? Or they may wanna make a point. Uh, and there are several examples I can name uh, when I was kind of put in the situation to say, why are they coming at us for this product? We really barely buy any compared to that retailer or that um, company, but it's because the brand was so well-known. So I really thought about brand impact whenever I did work within industries. Um, and I made a point also to make sure I knew deeply the suppliers we worked with their approach to their business, um, how they impacted their supply chain. So I think the knowledge, being curious and interested enough to know where the potential weak spots are in your category might be the bigger challenge. And as we saw from COVID, that all became very visible in supply chain from you know materials waiting in ports, they couldn't be offloaded for a number of people reasons, right? People didn't wanna to go to work, they didn't feel safe. Um, Companies weren't initially aware of what kind of impact there were on their employees um, all the way up the chain. So, you know, we saw lots of examples of, of people being concerned about going to work in warehouses or meatpacking plants. Um, but that was, that was reverberating through all places where people had to show up for work. The bus drivers, the grocery shoppers, I mean, the grocery baggers, people that worked in these essential um, industries. Um, so there's a lot of different places where um, risk can come and then issues can be developed. I think the more curious you are initially and the more people you know outside your narrow kind of supply chain department that look at the world differently than you, you'll be a better supply chain leader. What do you believe to be the greatest need in the food service industry as it is today? I think in, in the industry, uh, seriously right now, is the focus on people. I really want to say people because when you get underneath it all, especially as we noticed in supply chain, it's so dependent on people. People who enjoy what they do, know how to do their job because they're well-trained, really are loyal to what they um, perceive to be their, their employee employer base and their coworkers. Um, and this basically feeling safe and taken care of at work. They wanna feel uh, appreciated and they wanna feel joy. And they also wanna be smarter than they would have been if they weren't working where they worked, right? So I don't think anybody's just going to work mechanically to do something. 
some people have been designated to those kind of jobs, but they still have an, a, probably an opportunity to think about that person as someone who has a growth interest, right? Something they want to develop in themselves. So I think that's going to be the biggest challenge is to make sure that we recruit, retain, nurture, develop, and give folks opportunities. And without that, we can't run any of these companies well. We can't ship any goods. We can't um, sell any goods. We can't promote any goods. We can't do things for the consumer because we're so people dependent. And even though there's automation galore today and tomorrow, we'll still need people to think about implications of that uh, product, that development of that uh, sustainability program. Uh, I don't think we're going to have a a bot to do that today. So we <laughs> need to have human mindset and human will to do things. So that revolves around people and development. And as we see many industries are facing an aging um, uh, employee base. So people are either retiring without a pipeline of talent behind them because there's been no internship programs or rotational programs or recruiting. And folks may have not entered that space because they don't know about that potential opportunity as a job or career. Mm -hmm. So people are heavily thinking about when our whole group retires, what will we do? So you'll start to see people really focusing on things like even the trade industry is realizing they've missed a whole um, generation of folks that could have gone into the trades, right? So I do think people are our biggest opportunity, but our biggest blessing. I love how you said that at first it's recruit, retain, but then nurture and develop. And, and, and something that you said previously in conversation with me is that bringing in people from different industries is important. I mean, food service industry is a small world, but when we can bring in someone from, let's say technology, they bring visibility and technology is a vital part to what drives our customers to the brand today. So mm -hmm. someone with technology strength and background can bring a lot of advancement to supply chain within the food service industry. So really kind of having this diverse uh, mix of strengths is, is really just an asset, you know, when looking at recruitment, any thoughts on that? No, you're absolutely right. And I just reflected about how I was a, a no entity when I came in uh, to McDonald's from DuPont. Now DuPont, we had a whole cohort group of new hires. We kind of were expected to be trained up. So that was different. But when I came in to McDonald's, I had not been in the food industry. I was in a textile, you know, uh, chemi chemically based industry, a bit foreign, um, except for those that knew about packaging and things that DuPont had done. Um, and I hadn't grown up in the McDonald's so-called system. So I wasn't working as a supplier previously. So I made the point um, to really leverage the knowledge base at not only McDonald's, um, but also at the supplier base, because again, we were in agriculture directly or indirectly. Um, McDonald's, like many retails, don't really own their supplier base. There's some exceptions to that, but on the whole, people work with a set of core suppliers and those suppliers make sure those standards and expectations are met for the customer. So I spent a lot of time with a lot of suppliers. They could probably all tell stories about, <laughs> you know, going through ice storms and going through a plant, a crushing, a soybean crushing plant in Dayton, Ohio in January. Why was I doing that? Because I wanted to learn. Mm. Uh, going to the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade, learning about commodity risk management, super interesting. Uh, flying out to Idaho, Washington, and Oregon to see the potato fields uh, for mm. McDonald's and going from start to finish. Um, going to chicken farms in China to really see how the pullets were, you know, kind of raised up and the broilers were actually, um, 
managed throughout the entire supply chain, getting getting dirty in the ground, going to slaughterhouses across the world. I mean, I think about all the places I've been. I always wonder, I wonder if my mom knows where I am right now. <laughs> uh, but it was really interesting because so many people were enthusiastic about sharing with me because I asked, can I come visit your plant? Can I go to the farm with you? And it was rare, I think, many times for people to even do that, let alone follow the entire supply chain through, let alone bring other people with them. So I would bring an entourage with me saying, hey, these people are from finance or these people are from marketing or these folks are from the quality systems team, which usually were my cohorts big time to go to the plants. But they hadn't gone to the farms, depending on their role. So I was known as a field trip supervisor. Oh. And part of it was my learning because I said, hey, if we all don't know end to end what's happening, we will fail the brand, the company, because we'll, we'll over-index into over-promising, not knowing timelines, not understanding grow-out periods or seasons, um, importation rules, et cetera. So the more we all know, the more we can help each other move through some of these exciting times of product development and, and uh, launching of new products. So for me, that was um, super um, important for me to be able to speak the language of the people in the different parts of the supply chain. So I can talk to you all day long about you know the, um, the racking procedures in a distribution center. I can talk to you about trucker hours. I can talk to you about some of the laws that were put in place to protect employees recently. Um, the entire uh, expectation that the government has on traceability um, because it's important because that that's how you can manage risk. If you mm -hmm. know that there are weak links or some concerns or emerging issues, you can stay in front of that. But if you're asleep at the wheel, hoping things just show up magically to your back of house, that is not a good position to be in. So I mean, those are the things I think that have really made me excited about going to work when I did work. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. What you just said there goes back to just knowing your input costs. And I love the idea of traveling with your product from beginning to end. And, you know, as, as you know, we're in fresh produce and specifically with the transition happening with lettuce, oh, yeah. we're taking our suppliers through the field right now in Yuma, mm. and then they'll go and visit it again. Once it's moved to Salinas, there's so mm -hmm. many ways that you can dial it down um, year over year, um, you know, just, and, and then taking it from, like you said, the potato sheds to, to lettuce in the fields. I mean, just two totally different, um, contexts for your product and, and understanding the, the input drivers there. So, yeah, that's that. super interesting because I, especially on produce, but the question you asked me around other industries is what's emerging most in the produce industry is technology right? Mm -hmm. Knowing how much water so you don't waste as much using technology, um, atmospheric conditions. So meteorologists are super, super important in this role. Um, soil management. Um, and these things can be done through um, AI and detection technology um, and satellite. And I remember talking to um, Bruce Taylor about, you know, regenerating um, energy and getting off the grid. And I think they've installed, you know, wind turbines to allow them to use the wind that does come often in that valley to get themselves less dependent on electricity. So um, the innovative piece of that with people in tech or ideas around, so I think this could work, broadens solutions because mm -hmm. otherwise you're just kind of spinning around your own, your own echo chamber. When you bring somebody in from the outside, there's a miracle that could happen with ideation if we're willing to do that. So let's talk about disruptions. Um, you know, 
it was you also that said that we are daily miracle makers and workers <laughs> here in uh, in supply chain. What past disruption, or perhaps if you want to take it current disruption, do you believe is creating the greatest opportunity in our industry today? These are like pinnacle conversations. I mean, there's so many examples of the teeny issues that you can slap down really quickly or the ones you didn't see coming, i.e. COVID, right? You didn't know how widespread and and tumultuous that was going to be and unpredictable because that's the worst thing is not having the enough knowledge or experience to anticipate the next two or three steps or to anticipate the next two or three issues that are coming your way. And I remember, especially during COVID saying, you have got to be kidding me. What do you mean that's one of the ingredients for X, Y, and Z product? I had no idea seven steps up the supply chain. And I realized a number of our core packaging ingredients and inputs were coming out of that area. Mm. So there goes that, that delay. Um, and some of those plants and those um, shipping lines could not be restored quickly. And there was no backup supply. So the contingency plan was not even in place. That happened over and over again. Um, and I think because COVID was such a human issue as well, right? It impacted people so heavily that it wasn't like a forest fire or a mudslide or an earthquake that was, you know, off and on, and then you recover. It was global. And so everything got shut down in so many odd ways. And then when things started churning back up, it was such a big wheel to get going. Um, It's almost like having this super fast freight train come to a complete stop. And again, physics, all the train uh, the cars ran right into the engine, right? So it's like, it's like totally incapable of doing anything. And then there was waste. So the train cars had to be picked up and figured out. So all the inventory that we had in the supply chain and all the manufacturing during COVID early days came to a complete stop, right? right? So things that weren't shelf stable were an issue. So we have mm. fresh food, all over the place, either in the field, all the way through to finished goods, expiring, right? We remember all those things that had to be tilled under or milk being poured down the drain because it couldn't go anywhere. And I think people then really understood the enormity of how much was produced in this country. Now, some of that is we have a conversation to have still about the waste that's in the food industry in the United States. And the number that's been quoted is 40% of what's produced is wasted. Mm. Those are those are items that could go to hungry people, but it got worse and worse and worse because when we had no more inventory because it was being thrown away or given away or whatever, um, when it, the engine started back, back up and people started opening up some portion of retail, there was nothing to send them. They were out of ketchup. They were out of meat. They were out of you know, um, dairy products. So just think about that for a minute. Like the engine that is the supply chain in the food industry in the United States is massive, but it gets people dependent. So how do we get people back at work quickly, safely, and assure them that they will be safe and that they can do their job? And as people start going back into restaurants, they're kind of nervous. Uh, you're using QR codes now to look at the menu versus the customer service you used to, because again, there aren't that many people back at work in the same way, not having the information you need, uh, nor the decision makers in the room, and this spinning around. So I think the biggest thing any company can do, small crisis or large, is to decide your crisis management team, first and foremost, 
and then you're running the business team. They have to be separated. There's going to be engagement, but I, I was in so many meetings during COVID that I had to delegate to my team certain day-to-day activities, right? But they knew they could reach me, but I, there's no way people can double time those roles in a very intense crisis management um, organ, uh, situation. But now that we're kind of out of COVID, sort of, it's really important, and we did this during COVID, is to test your contingency plans. Mm-hmm. Like look at each of your weak spots in your supply chain or your unknown parts of your supply chain. We discovered a lot and go back and say, are we resilient enough? Do we have a backup plan? Um, and if not, and it's not a critical item, maybe that's okay for now, but for your core critical items, they're essential to your brand. Are you resilient to stand the next crisis? If you're not doing that work now, you better start. You better start. Yeah. I think any disruption or interruption or challenge in life gives us that opportunity to kind of test out uh, your contingency plan and then coming out of it, debrief and, and, and kind of rewire and fine tune. Mm -hmm. Um, That's definitely, definitely a positive that can be drawn. I love that. So you separate crisis management from the business operations. So one more question on, um, you know, mitigating risks and to that. And then I want to dive into more motherhood and working mom because you (laughs) you definitely have a a special lane to speak to with that. How would you say someone in procurement or a sourcing role can properly identify risks and mitigate repeated issues, things that are happening again and again, anything from your experience? Well, it depends on your role, but I think as an early entry and kind of a entry level person at McDonald's, I had the opportunity to really learn from seasoned professionals, the history of that category of the industry. So I did sit down a lot with people for coffee, lunch, breakfast, whatever was suitable or even an afternoon work chat around the infamous water cooler. Uh, Tell me (laughs) stories, what happened? You know, I heard about this. What was the real story behind, you know, us running out of product or or I heard this thing happen during the 19 blah, blah, blahs. Um, I learned so much history and then people would storytell around dinner, but the, the legacy people would come in the room and talk about the origins of the McDonald's business. And that's fascinating, right? Who doesn't love an origin story? So, um, you know, I think digging into those historical aspects gives you kind of a, an idea of what had happened before and then what was resolved and how did that work out and then what were the fixes put in place. So as you go into new ones, you can kind of lean back and say, well, I remember they talked about blah, blah, blah. So perhaps mm-hmm. we should incorporate that. Or um, in this other category that I happen to know about, they're trying this procedure, this process, and maybe we should think about it. So you know, kind of being deep and broad in a company that allows for that is super interesting. Um, but I think early on, people have to be trained. I mean, I, I think about people who are working today and I know many of them are not getting training and it's frustrating, you know, from the waitress who has no idea how to work the POS system to somebody who's working on contract, you know, like roofing, how have they been trained if the mm-hmm. people haven't taken the time to talk about, you know, how to do it, issues if you don't do it right, et cetera. So, I think people coming into a business need to be well-trained and exposed. If people can get trained up well, then you can think about, okay, if we have flour going into our McDonald's buns, what are the issues around flour procurement? Was there a bad crop? What are the alternatives to the, the particular wheat or flour that we use for backup? You know, what about your uh, unionization that might be going on? How will that affect the con- continuity of manufacturing? Um, what if your oven goes down? You know, where else can you produce this product? 
So the supplier can help you identify those, those tough um, critical control points as well. And then you think about, you know, what if this product just doesn't sell? You know, how can we unwind the investment made with a supplier? Um, can they sell to somebody else? So all these other things can go on as well. But sure. I think engaging, understanding your supply chain, making sure you train people and doing a lot of what if scenarios um, would really help anybody coming in to advert, not avoid, but avert some of the crisis that may happen. Sure. So thinking about those just coming into the industry, you brought up a good mm -hmm. point. Training is so important. We have to invest in our people. We have to take that time to properly train them. But they also have to take the onus to kind of do the forensics and like what you said, engage yes. with people. And a previous guest had said just the great value he would share is going to conferences. And that just doesn't, doesn't mean attending the happy hours and standing <laughs> at the booth, but really talking right. to people and asking questions that can unpack some of their experiences. And something that I truly value in other people is transparency, because mm -hmm. I really appreciate hearing some experiences of others, especially challenges, because again, we have so much to learn and share as a result of having gone through them. And if yeah. you can ask the right questions and kind of unpack some of those, you know, what if scenarios, I think you've got a lot to learn. So one thing our president, Melissa said that she appreciated most about you was your ability to mold your career ambitions and goals with your role as a mother and just how also you utilize your diverse experiences to kind of inform your knowledge base. Talk to me a little bit about being a mom. I think before I even thought about being a mother, I was a working woman. So I started my career and I was, you know, in my late thirties before I, before I got married, uh, met my husband in Chicago and married kind of later than most people, but it was my time and had kids um, when I was in my nearly forties. So my kids are, one's in college now, one's going to college. And so I have friends whose kids are well out of college and have families of their own. So we're all on different paths. But um, I think being a mom really changed things for me, obviously, more than ever. But I also mm -hmm. want to say when I was single, I made a declaration that I was not going to be consumed by work. And the reason I say that is because there's so many you know, some single people that are young that get eaten up because they're viewed as, you know, machines for the business or you know, the working cow, I keep using these analogies, the animals, but you got to have a life no matter what season you're in. And so I declared that early in my career that I would not let work consume me. So I got involved with the community. I always volunteered working with kids. Um, I went out a lot with my friends. I made sure I cut off the work so I can go work out and keep myself healthy. I traveled a lot for, um, for fun. Um, and so when I got married, I, I continue to say, where's the cutoff point? Because when I had my first child, I lost all my personal time. We know how that is. If you're a mom, it's like, absolutely that shit, that child won't stop crying. They want me all the time. What is going on? Where's my... <laughs> so I remember a wonderful manager of my Mara Havanka, he said, you got to get up early or stay up late. You got to declare where in the day is your personal time and own it. And that was just pristine advice because I did it. I started getting up early. I'm an early bird. And I would use that first hour and a half to myself. And I still protect it, even though my family is, doesn't need me as much the same way. I'm like <laughs> getting up early. Not today, I didn't. I've taken up rowing, which I'll do more in the summer if I don't like cold weather. Um, but I started doing that and it gets me up early. It's beautiful out here, um, but it's about me. And that is such a smart move for any person, let alone women. They have to own their personal time and protect it like nothing else, or you'll be horrible with everything else in your life. So you talk mm -hmm. about, you can't pour from an empty cup. 
people say, put your oxygen mask, mask on before you help others. It all is the same, you know, analogy is look out for yourself because what good are you if you're broken, tired, mad, frustrated, angry, um, sick, you know, what good are you to anybody? So own it, own your personal time. Absolutely. My husband and I both have family that lives far from us. And it, from early on in marriage with kids, it forced us to, to rely on our tribe and village. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful um, for the time that the kids get with my, my parents when they have it, but I'm grateful yes. for kind of this, this natural village that we've built around us, because when people, you know, people can ask, you know, for help all the time, but whether you say yes, you know, that that's an, that's a whole other, you know, mm-hmm. but Certainly there are things to love about that particular stage. You are in retirement. How, how do you stay intellectually stimulated? You are, you know, bright and savvy and, and just, you know, I hear rowing, I'm seeing pictures of cherry blossoms on a walk, but you know, what else are you involving yourself in, in, in retirement at the current time? Well, you know, I told my, I told everyone, this is true that when I retired, they said, what are you going to do? I said, reclaim my time. I'm reclaiming my time, just like representative vaccine water said for a different reason, but <laughs> it is so important because people just assume because I'm retired, I want to do all this stuff for them. And I'm like, no, I was on a bike ride and I saw my neighbor and he said, well, you want to be on the board? I was like, no, no I don't. <laughs> but I do know somebody who will be a good add to your board. So I'm oh, always an advocate for, you. for others. Yeah. So I stay, I've stayed involved in the community. Like I mentioned, when I was even single and living in New York, I got involved with uh, mentoring children in Harlem in this program that uh, Jeffrey Kanda started and it's still going on. It was phenomenal. So I love working with women and children and girls. And so I've been on capital campaigns to help build a new school um, for where my daughter went to school when she first got here. That's done, working on phase two for a gym, getting involved in that. I'm a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. I'm the treasurer of the, the graduate chapter here and we're doing fantastic things for the community and for women and girls, uh, college focused as well. Um, we started a national coalition of 100 black women here in Seattle, and I'm on the health committee for that. A good piece of advice, because I mean, having an agenda with anything with social just feels challenging. It's supposed to be agenda free, you know, and so when it's networking and it's poised to, you know, make connections and it, it just feels sometimes, um, I don't know, manufactured, but Nonetheless, yeah. great advice. Mm-hmm. Go out and be interesting. And you know, that'll that'll make start making connections and building relationships. Get off so your phone. You. Don't be yeah. scrolling when you're at a cocktail party unless you're trying to find a contact for somebody else. Just get off the phone, sure. put it in your purse or pocket and just sure. go around and admire someone's jacket. Okay, so I'm gonna ask just a couple what we call closer questions. Um, you know, mm-hmm. rapid fire here. But okay. what what daily habit keeps you grounded? Oh, I love my coffee. So we'll start there. <laughs> I feel like maybe one day I'll get up and not have it. I'm like, why would I do that? So um, I still try to get up early, but I, I've given myself grace that if I don't go out and do the rowing, there is another day behind that. So I can still take a walk. Um, mm-hmm. If I don't accomplish everything on my list, I give credit to myself for what I did do. But, uh, you know, just kind of looking forward to the day that is and not worrying about yesterday or tomorrow as much as today. And that just keeps me motivated. I'm very blessed to have both of my children healthy. My husband's healthy. I'm healthy. Um, so we try to do things to celebrate that too by spending time together. Yeah, I imagine following your career to head into retirement, although it sounds like you still stay quite busy, but there's this, 
you know, you're wired to be very productive and also highly efficient with your time on a day in day out basis. So it takes a while to unravel that. What tool in your workday saved you the most time or let's say a favorite productivity hack? I could not live without my calendar. Um, yeah. You know, taking a look at it before the day, the day before, maybe the week before, but there was one point when I was in the season of being a young mother that looking at my calendar made me very unsettled. Cause I knew I had to travel and it was just, it was just so hard to say, Oh my God, I got to be out of town for three days. And you know, so this is going on. I used to lay the kids clothes out for a whole week. I was a little bit overkill. Mm-hmm. Um, then I was, yeah, my husband's capable of putting clothes on a kid. Why am I doing this? So I had to stop. You're not the only one creating stress for myself. So I had to let go. And I keep telling people, let go. Perfection mm-hmm. is, is a neurotic behavior. And it's never achievable. It's very stressful. So stop trying to seek perfection. I think that being relaxed um, and flexible is such a blessing now. And I think even if you're working, just calm down. But the calendar was my friend. I had to plan. I've always had a PDA. It used to be called a wizard, I think, back in the day. Mm. I had a wizard. <laughs> which oh my I gosh. The, you're, I you remember, remember the wizard that. and the yes. Palm Pilot, which actually was cool because you could beam information back then. And that was <laughs> Um, but I, I've always had one of those because it kept me aware of what I had to do, you know, in, in the future or what I should be doing right now. So I had a paper copy, um, calendar through the PDA now I'm kind of paperless. Um, still need to print out once in a while, but I, I try to calendar. kids, kids will make you schedule frenzied, right? Cause my kids were active in clubs and, and, uh, sports and academics, and we traveled. So I had to look out. I had everybody's calendar on my calendar. Mm-hmm. It's a treat so to take management. Off I could sure. unsubscribe, unsubscribe, <laughs> unsubscribe, unsubscribe and time management. But no, I, I often tell people being a, a working mom, I've, I've, I've never felt, um, you know, just stronger in what I do just because I have Amen. such a great pulse on my Amen. time. Yes. I understand exactly how much I have to get what I need to get done today. And I'll be done. Yes. I'm going to get it done. Um, but I what I heard in there also is, you know, resetting expectations and being able to let go to something that, um, is very important. So it's just balance. Right. So love that. Yeah. So to speak, I guess as, as it goes balance, as it goes that day. Sure. <laughs> sure. Balance sure. as it goes that day. I think, and I, I think you, you just summarize everything so well, every time you kind of recite what we just talked about. Um, but you know, I think it's just, just letting things go. And I think it's with wisdom, with age comes wisdom mm-hmm. because you realize what's really important and what's important is not to be flying into meetings, shouting at people, getting stuff done that way. It's mm-hmm. like maybe talking to people beforehand, going in that meeting with the expectations reset and talked about, closing the meeting with what we're doing next and coming back and saying, okay, we did a good job. Cause sure. that positive reinforcement will get you much more out of people than all that beaten down. You didn't do this deadlines over what was wrong with you kind of stuff. So just, uh, just be a little bit, you know, calm and, and, you know, focus on the person that you're dealing with right then and there. It's the most important moment of their life, maybe when you're with them. Okay. Last question. What excites you about the future? Well, I look forward to staying healthy so I can continue for this world. I'm supposed to go to Greece with my college roommate probably won't get there. But by golly, we're going to be doing something to celebrate our big birthdays this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many places I have already been, but there's so many places I want to go to. I've never been to South America. So that's a destination for sure. 
Um, every year we try to do a graduation um, trip. So we were fortunate, so fortunate last year to go to South Africa, uh, London, South Africa, and Amsterdam, which was phenomenal to go with young mm-hmm. adults with you this time versus the babies who kind of like have meltdowns. I guess they, didn't have <laughs> they had meltdowns too, but they were different. In fact, I had, a pen, I had a pen pal from Cape Town that was given to me in like third grade. And I wrote to him through college and then I got married and I realized, you know, it's probably not appropriate to be penning letters across the, the, the world to my, my second grade pen pal. But I learned all about Cape Town through that experience. <laughs> oh, Lauren, but you should stay in contact because they're probably married with kids. But you know what like we did do every place we stopped because yeah. of our international experience, we called in advance the folks that we knew and we got a quick 12 hour tour during oh. our over in London. We met up with a college friend that we have been in China with as well in Joburg, um, saw a friend in Amsterdam I hadn't seen in 25 years. Wow. Stay in touch with people because my daughter's like, mom, how do you even, I said, thank God, this is the only reason social media works for me is because yeah. I, I can find yeah. people. But I mean, I'm notorious for staying connected. So I'm looking forward to them kind of doing the same thing and building their circle of, of friendship across the world. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I know that there's going to be a ton of people that listen to our conversation and, and have learned, um, you know, something as a result of hearing about your experience, many things, I'm sure if mm. people want to get in touch with you, maybe bounce a question off, um, or further network, where can people get a hold of you? Do you, are you on LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn. That's the, the place I go for business discussions. I actually took a fast from social media and I felt so free. Um, prior to Lent, I did that. And I'm like rarely on Facebook now. I don't even understand how to use Instagram. I just got up because my kids were on. I'm like, I just so, so don't want to use this. <laughs> so the best place to reach me is LinkedIn. Uh, I, I deleted TikTok off my phone. It was such a time suck. But um, yeah, LinkedIn's perfect. I try to get back to people in a timely manner. I find it a super great place as long as people don't go crazy and think it's their personal diary um, mm-hmm. to actually uh, connect with people and stay abreast of what they're doing. Jacqueline Howard. You are amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much for giving me the time today. Well, thank you, Lauren. And thank you, Melissa, for asking me to be on one of your first podcasts and stay in touch with me. I'd love to hear how your world is working out for you. Yes, absolutely. We'll continue to share uh, the guests that come on board. And if you hear of someone that you think would be a great contributor to the discussions as well, send it my way. (laughs) I sure will. Thanks, Lauren. You have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Have a great day. And that wraps up another episode. We have covered a lot of ground today. Thank you for joining. For show notes and our most updated market report, visit us at groundedthepod.com. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators by leveraging technology, talent, and an insatiable appetite to improve.